Well, good morning, everyone. It is so great to be worshiping uh, with you this morning. Uh, as uh, Pastor Jacob said, my name's Danny, and I oversee church planting uh, for this group that we're involved uh, in together called Converge. And uh, when Pastor Aaron asked if I'd have availability to speak here, I thought, oh, this is perfect because it's actually church planting weekend. So our converged churches, which are all over the United States and really all over the world, are, are taking um, some time, actually not only this week, but the entire month to kind of highlight church planting and really just to celebrate uh, what God is doing. And what I want to say um, about church planting, which my message is not you know, directly related to church planting, but I just want to say thank you uh, that you guys are a part of Converge, um, not only your investment in our church planters, but uh, Pastor Aaron is even coaching some of our, our church planters. Uh, Pastor Jacob did a theology workshop at one of our conferences, and you guys have been, uh, some of the staff have been coming to conferences. And so thank you so much uh, for your uh, partnership uh, in that. Um, what I would like to do, though, today with our time uh, is to look at a section of Scripture uh, when Pastor Aaron invited me, uh, I said, so what do you want me to preach on? He said, well, we've kind of been going through this series looking at the core values of CIL. And, you know, it'd be kind of weird if you all of a sudden just came in and, and did one of those. Uh, so you get to preach on whatever you want. Okay, and I thought, oh man, that's a really dangerous thing, you know. Just, um, you know, I, I could maybe just go to the file cabinet and you know pull out one of the favorite uh, sermons, but I decided to use this as an opportunity uh, to preach on a passage that I haven't before, uh, one from the Old Testament, one that's just always kind of intrigued me. And uh, so, uh, Pastor Jacob and I were kind of talking a little bit uh, this week, and I said, um, the, the good news is, is that this is a fresh new sermon. Uh, the bad news is I'm still kind of working it out. I, I'm still kind of wrestling with God, and you're going to see that. Uh, but it's one of the great things, because I actually believe that maybe a sermon and maybe Scripture should never be done, right? That it is always living and active. And, and so today, um, why don't you bow your heads pray with me, and then we're going to dig into God's word uh, together here this morning. Heavenly Father, we do just praise you and thank you so much for who you are. Thank you already for the time that we've had to praise your name, extol you for who you are and what it is you've done for us. Thank you that you've given us your holy word, that, that you are not silent, you are not absent, and, and God, we pray your Holy Spirit would be active and present, not only in the teaching and the preaching, but also the listening and applying of your holy word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I want to invite you to open your Bibles up to First uh, Samuel chapter 24. I'll give you a little uh, extra time in case it's been a while since you've been just uh, perusing through First Samuel. So First Samuel 24, we're actually going to cover the entire chapter today. And the way that we're going to do this is I'm going to break it up into four different sections. So I'll read a section of scripture. We're going to make some observation and some application from it. Then we'll continue to kind of go through and we'll get to this landing point uh, kind of at the end. And my whole goal as we leave here today is that you would get a bigger picture of who God is. There's no doubt that during this, there's going to be some application for you and for your life. But my prayer goal for you is at the end that you'd have a bigger, uh, greater understanding of who God is. All right, so 1 Samuel 24, 
We're going to start just by reading the first two verses. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of Wild Goat's Rocks. Which is a great name for a bar, by the way. So, um, I don't know, it just has that, that ring to it. Um, but here's, here's our first observation. Here's our first observation. Jealousy almost always grows into hurtful action. Okay, jealousy almost always grows into hurtful action. I know that's a bit of a stretch just from the first two verses that we read here, but let me fill you in just a little bit of the context. I know that many of you are familiar who King David is, who King Saul is, but just to kind of refresh your memory, and maybe if you're newer to church, uh, just kind of coming back to kind of understand the context of this. Okay, King Saul was the first king of Israel. The people of Israel, they wanted a king. And God always said, you don't need a king. I'm here. I can be the one to govern you. They begged and they're like, God, please give us a king. And so God chose King Saul. That's really important because we're going to see this later on in the story. God anointed. Okay, that, that means God chose Saul to lead the people, the nation of Israel. And he was a good king. He did great things. He was a good leader. He had a good relationship with God. Things were going pretty well for Saul until there became this point where the power kind of got to his head and he started to stray away and started to do things his way instead of God's way. And so during this time, through Samuel the prophet, then David is anointed and chosen by God to be king. But understand there's a big gap in there. So from the point in which Saul, you know, starts to stray away from God and when David is anointed as king, he doesn't, David doesn't become king until later. And so in that in-between time, there is this uh, relationship between King Saul and anointed future King David. And, and with this tension stirs up all sorts of jealousy. Now, you might not know that much about King Saul and King David, but even if you don't go to church at all, you know the story of David and Goliath, right? And because of David and Goliath, it really becomes this turning point. Um, It becomes this significant uh, time in which Saul and his heart towards God and his leadership changes. Because here's what happens. David goes, he slays Goliath, he becomes this mighty warrior, and uh, there, there, there comes this moment where, you know, then, you know, David is part of the, uh, the, the troops, he's part of the, the warriors of Israel, and, and he comes back from war, and Saul comes back from war, and they won this battle, and so the people are cheering. It actually says that the women are cheering and dancing. I mean, can you imagine that? You're King Saul and you're coming back and there's all these people, they're cheering and dancing and they're like, Saul has slain his thousands. And he's like, this is awesome. I'm just living in my glory right now. And then they followed up and said, and David has killed 10,000. Boom. It was at that point that these seeds of jealousy Enter into his heart. First Samuel 18 says, 
It says, you know, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. This, re- this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But to me, only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. See, those seeds of jealousy entered Saul's heart. Now he was comparing himself. He was wondering, why were the people so excited about who King David was and not me? I'm just going to keep my eye on David. See, here's one of the issues maybe and problems that I've recognized is I think that we in American culture that we've minimized the dangers of jealousy. I mean, how many times do you even just use it kind of in a fun-loving, harmless way? Like, oh man, your car that you got, I'm so jealous. Or you got to go out to eat last night and, you know, you had cheesecake. Oh, I'm so jealous of that. I'm so jealous. So it's kind of like this soft, harmless little thing. And what's the big deal? Saul's a leader. He's just going to keep his eye on David. There's nothing wrong with keeping your eye on someone. Well, it never stays that way. Jealousy never stays as this harmless, neutral little thing because what we see in King Saul's life is he goes from just keeping his eye on David to relentlessly pursuing him to try to kill him. Have you ever had one of those bad dreams where someone's like chasing you and every corner that you go around, the, the person is there? That's what it was like for David's life or a movie where it's like this constant chase and there's this anxiety that's happening. That's what was happening Uh, for uh, King David. Saul was trying to kill him because he was so jealous. Proverbs 14.30 says this, I love this. A peaceful mind gives life to the body, but jealousy rots the bones. Think of that, internally. And, And who does jealousy affect, according to that verse? It actually affects you. I had a pastor that uh, recently said that um, jealousy, and I love this, jealousy is like a poison that you drink expecting it to kill the other person. Do you love that? And that goes coincides perfect here with Proverbs 14.30. So, so what do we do about it? Okay, if, if we can acknowledge just from a, a place of practical application, because um, I guarantee that all of us, have struggled at some point with jealousy. And there may be some of you, even in here right now, where this is an issue that is right in your face. Okay, but all of us have had jealousy, will have jealousy. So what do we do about it? I think that we have to be proactive when we recognize jealousy in our lives. Okay, we have to be proactive. We cannot assume that it's just gonna fizzle out and die away. Okay, it's like, Weeds in your lawn. Does anyone else like take care of their lawn? Not not like pay a company and stuff like that. But you know, you actually take care of your lawn. You ever see a weed and you're like, oh, that'll just that'll go away. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. You got to either pay someone. You got to be proactive. Here here's just uh, two quick things. The first one is to um, uh, proactively institute gratitude. Did you ever have it when you were growing up? At least. I did. Uh, My parents were like, count your blessings. Okay, so I'm going to tell you right now. Count your blessings. When you start to feel jealousy, 
And uh, uh, I love this because Aubrey was doing this even during worship when we were talking about the goodness of God. And he was just like, I- I'm going to say thanks for things that maybe even take for granted. You know, the food that we eat. You know, if you're jealous about something specific, you're jealous about the promotion that someone got. Start even writing down the blessings of the job that you have now. You know, you're jealous about the house that, you know, your, your friends bought and they posted on Instagram. And you're like, man, I live in this crummy 2,000 square foot thing with a small pool and the garage barely fits my boat. Jeepers. You know? We've all been there before. So gratitude. Here's a second one. Here's a second one. Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. This is one of the greatest uh, antidotes to jealousy. It's, it's hard. It can still happen. But if you pray for someone, you will see that that jealousy sincerely, and I'm not saying that's easy, but get to a place where, where you start praying for that person. Say, thank you, Lord, for them. And this is how I want to pray for them. Okay, we have a lot to cover. We've only gotten two verses done, so let's continue to go on. Uh, just understand observation number one, there's this jealousy that's happening. Day, uh, and, and, and just as a reminder, um, Saul's army is now pursuing David. And he came to the shepherd folds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This, um, I told you that I love this story. And remember, these are real things happening. This isn't a parable from the Bible. These are real people and real events that happened. And here, this is crazy. So David and his 600 men are on the run. They're, they're trying to constantly get away from Saul. So they go to this place called En Gedi. Okay, I want you to picture for your mind, it's right next to the Dead Sea. It's desolate. It is a desert area. However, there's this one small little oasis where there's water and vegetation, um, and it's littered with caves. And so David's men are like, here's a place that we can hide and try to escape. Well, King Saul finds out about it, so he tries to find them. And David and his 600 men go into a cave. And I want you to think of like a huge cave where you can go into the recesses into the back. No light. Okay? You can, you can totally hide in there. You can stay away from the sun. It's a great, great place. Well, Saul and his men, they come down and... Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to find David, and there's lots of these caves all over the place. And it just so happens to be the one cave that David and his men are in, and Saul, it says, needed to, according to the Hebrew, relieve himself. He literally had to go to the bathroom. Don't you just love that about the Bible? I mean, it's just like giving you a little, little TMI here. But set the stage that 
that Saul needs to go to the bathroom. So he's like, you guys wait right here. I think this is significant. He would have left. There's no guards with him, no one. He is completely vulnerable. Imagine this. I mean, there's not a more vulnerable time that you have to relieve yourself. We don't know if it's number one or number two. But either way, you are vulnerable. And notice what happens here is that the first people to speak are David's men. Okay, David's men say, well, this is it. We've been on the run, and now this is the day that the Lord has made. You can end this all very, very easily. Well, here's the observation um, uh, that that, uh, we want to make from this section is that God's convictions needs to outweigh worldly voices. God's conviction needs to outweigh worldly voices. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, I said that David's men, they told him essentially, hey, this is perfect, this is now your day, you need to go ahead and kill him. But you also see in here, it talks about the conviction, uh, verse 5, and afterwards David's heart struck him. Okay, so there was something going on inside of David's heart where even after he cut his robe, if we're reading it chronologically here, that he even was convicted about that because he recognized that this was still the Lord's anointed. King Saul was still the chosen king by God even though he had you know, kind of walked away from the Lord, was disobeying God. It's almost like you know, the, the two angels or an angel on this shoulder and a devil on this shoulder uh, type of situation. David's trying to discern what is he going to do, uh, what is he going to do uh, in this moment. And instead of coming up behind him and just stabbing him in the back or slitting his throat, ending it completely, he decides instead to just cut off a piece of fabric. And he comes back to his men. I want you to imagine for a moment, because this is one of the ones where I said, man, I am still kind of working this out in my own mind, in my own heart. And I don't even know if I believe my own observation here completely. So, so run with me with this for a little bit. And, and here's what I mean by this. Um, I said, you shouldn't listen to worldly voices, but you should listen to God's voice. Um, this would be much easier of an observation or a sermon illustration if... I didn't actually agree somewhat with what the men, the, the wise counsel that, that they were giving to David. If I put myself in that situation, I don't know if I would consider it worldly or sinful voices. They actually here are even pointing to Scripture and or God as being the one who says, Hey, didn't God say that you were going to become the king? Right? They're making an argument here as if they're, you know, we, we don't know, we don't have it quoted exactly in, in Scripture in some other place, but we do know that the prophet Samuel did say to David, you're going to become king. And so they're going, well, everything here is perfect. The reason why this is so hard for me is that when I teach decision-making to people, I say that one of the most important things is that you have Um, godly counsel, that you have godly counsel. And maybe their counsel really wasn't that ungodly. And yet, at the same time, 
just because someone says God or quotes scripture doesn't mean that that's actually what you need to do. So do you get that? Do you understand that tension? I'm giving you a tension here, not an answer of exactly how to do it. I wish it was so easy that when you had a decision before you, that you could just say, oh, well, this is really easy. You just look it up in the Bible. How many pastors have told you, do you have any questions? The answers are right here, okay? I agree with that to a certain extent, but there's going to be times where it's not that easy. So David is wrestling. Do I do with what I'm convicted in my heart, or do I take this counsel that comes from these trusted men who are around me? And here, David is sensitive to God's spirit and says, I am not going to lift a hand against him. And so when we get to a, uh, when we get to a place uh, uh, like this, how do we actually make decisions. Okay, again, each one of these could probably be their own sermon, so I'm just going to give this to you really, really quickly. Read, pray, listen, act, and reflect. Here's what I mean by that. I'll say it one more time. Read, so read scripture, pray, listen, act, and reflect. I think that if we're to be sensitive to God's voice, that's something that develops over time. Okay, there may be something that you're contemplating And yes, my first advice as a pastor is, hey, make sure you go ahead, read in Scripture. If there's anything that conflicts in Scripture, then it's a done deal. Okay, because God's not going to ask you to do something that conflicts against his word. But here, there could have even been justification for it. He could have said, it's self-defense. I'm going to become the next king. You You could point to lots of different ways to justify the Bible to say this is a God thing. Okay, but then when you pray and you're actually listening to God, at some point, you're going to need to act on it. So early on in your relationship with God, as you're learning to discern God's voice, I know that this was true. I didn't surrender my life to Christ until I was in college. And there was times where I like, I think God is telling me to do this. And so I would pray and read, and then I would do it. And it was usually hindsight that it was like, yeah, that was totally of God, or man, you just ate a a salami sandwich that night that was totally messing with you. It wasn't God at all. And then over time, you begin then to know and to hear and to discern God's voice. And at probably all stages, there's still going to be that step of faith. But David was one who then was uh, faithful uh, to uh, hearing and applying. Um, You know, he, he he was faithful to applying God's word and and applying the voice and the conviction of God. All right, totally running out of time, so let me keep going here. Afterward, David, uh, starting in verse 8, Afterward, David arose and went out to the cave, and he called after Saul, My Lord, my king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into into my hand in the cave. And some told me even to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. 
May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against. Okay, so real quick, David comes out, chases after Saul, and says, hey, look, I could have killed you, I didn't. It's kind of his peace offering, let's, let's make things right, but if not, and you keep pursuing me, I just want you to know that I am leaving this into the Lord's hands. So observation number three is releasing justice into the hands of God. Do you see what David did? He essentially said, I know that this guy is trying to kill me, but I'm not going to exact revenge on him. And just so you know, this isn't the only time that David had the opportunity to kill King Saul. There's multiple times in which Saul is pursuing him, and then David has the opportunity to kill him, and he continues to say, no, 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 I am not going to do that. So here we have what I would consider is the supernatural act of mercy. Okay, the supernatural act of mercy. And what mercy is, is it's withholding punishment that someone deserves. Uh, This is important because I think that within Christianity, sometimes we throw out terms like justice or grace or mercy, and we kind of like mix them together. Understand that grace is a gift that you give someone, they don't deserve it. Mercy is withholding like punishment from someone, like you do deserve this punishment and you should have it. David had every right to kill King Saul. But instead, he does this supernatural act of mercy and withholds killing him. This will be really important as we get uh, really to the last section to be able to see how all of this um, kind of comes together. Uh, Pick up in verse 16. It says this. As soon as David had finished speaking the words to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? Uh, And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe. We'll actually just stop there because you can make the observation. You can read the rest of the verses later today. Observation number four is mercy just might be the greatest reflection of the heart of God. Mercy just might be the greatest reflection of the heart of God. You, you know that David has a, uh, is known uh, in, the, in Scripture like no other person. It says that David was a man after God's own heart. David was not perfect. We learn later he screws up. No one's perfect, you know, um, you know, except for God, except for Jesus. So even David, he's not perfect. But to have that title, to be a man after God's own heart, I think that we see it right here in this supernatural act of mercy that's happening. Because what does he do? It's his enemy who's pursuing him, and instead he treats him with love. Does this remind you? of anything or anyone? Do you remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you have heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm here to tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, Saul had this extreme jealousy towards David to the point where he was trying to murder him, pursuing him. 
And at every step of the way, multiple times, David, a man after God's own heart, extends mercy. How could David do that? I use the word supernatural on purpose because it's not natural. You, you know what's natural. I don't even have to tell you. When someone does something to you, small or large, your reaction is to get revenge and to, um, you know, to, to do something back, to do some sort of punishment. But see, I believe that David was so close to the Lord that he captured something. He knew that even in his own imperfection, that God was merciful to him. All he was doing was living out the mercy that God had upon him and to live that mercy out on other people. Can can I tell you a a verse that we don't um, often share with one another? Uh, It's Romans 5.10. For if while we were God's enemies. I'm not making this up. The Bible says that we were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. We, though, were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? I believe that if you experience any sort of jealousy or if you want to live like the life of David, you can't do it on your own natural power. You have to come to a place where you truly embrace and live out the mercy in which God extended to you so that then you can extend that mercy to other people. And friends, this is, this is the gospel message. This is everything that Jesus not only taught about, but that he exemplified. We were enemies of God, it says, but because of God's great love for us, he was willing to die on the cross so that we, even though we deserved punishment, even though we deserved eternal separation from him, even though we deserved hell, God said, no, I'm going to send my son Jesus who will die a sacrificial death so that you may have the gift of eternal life, and that's grace. So remember that. That mercy is the withholding. We deserved to have eternal separation from him. But he cancels that out because of the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus and gives us then grace, eternal life. So as you go from this place, for some of you, maybe it's that jealousy right now that you're dealing with in your life. And you can maybe just take some of those steps towards you know, squashing that out. And for some of you, maybe it's just coming to that realization of the great mercy that God has had on you, that you then can extend that mercy to other people, even people that are pursuing you, even people that are persecuting you, even people that are hurting you, that you would have that mercy on other people. And I just have to believe that I know that there's tons of things that we do as Christians and as the church to try to convince people of who God is and how awesome church is and you should come with me, I'll tell you what, when you start to live out mercy the way that David lived out mercy, when you live out mercy the same way that God lived out mercy towards you, it is so attractive, it is so magnetic that people will say, I want that. So let's bow our heads and pray. 
Heavenly Father, we do just praise you and thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are a God that did not leave us in our sin, that you did not leave us as enemies of you, but because of your great love, you sent your son, Jesus. And God, I pray right now, if there is anyone in this room that has never said yes to receiving your forgiveness, even if they don't understand everything about the Bible and who God is and what chapters and verses, but they recognize that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, that they're in need of a God who says, I love you, I forgive you, that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would touch their hearts, that you would speak to them right now, and in their own words that they would say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place that I may be reconciled, that I may be made right with God the Father. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Make me new. And Lord, for the rest of us, may we just be so inspired by David, this imperfect man, this imperfect king who had plenty and plenty of flaws, but he was willing to live under the conviction of your grace and your mercy to extend that to other people. May we be people of supernatural mercy because we have received supernatural mercy from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.